infrastructure projects can accelerate Australia's economic recovery. But where will the investment come from to fuel that? Hello and welcome to our podcast, Transforming Business with Minter Ellison, ideas and challenges that are shaping our future. Construction is a bellwether for Australia's economic condition. Continued investment in residential, industrial and commercial property and major infrastructure projects keeps the industry moving and Australia prosperous. In the midst of COVID-19, state and federal governments are seeking to fast-track and fund infrastructure projects and help steer the nation towards economic recovery. But in this time of high government debt, there's a clear and pressing need to attract private investment. To find out how Australia might secure that investment, Minter Ellison partner and infrastructure industry leader Nicole Green caught up with IFM Investors Chief Executive David Neal for a virtual chat. After almost 13 years as CEO of the Future Fund, David, you started with IFM Investors in quarter one of 2020, which coincided with Australia's response to COVID. Can you reflect on some of the challenges that that timing brought to what must have been a most unusual time to take the reins at IFM Investors? Yeah, thanks, Nikki. Um, look, it's lovely to be here and chatting with you. Clearly, it was uh, it was a really unusual time, and it was it's been an interesting transition. Um, so I sit here as we speak now, I'm just about to come up to six months in the role I've spent. Uh, all of that time working from home, most of it from the corner of my bedroom. Uh, so it is an odd way to get to start running um, a, a global business. And of course, the environment we're in has added a lot of challenges to that. Actually, you know, maybe maybe before I talk about the challenges, though, I might just reflect on on the opportunity that it's yeah, from a personal perspective in that when you're in the cauldron of dealing with a crisis as we were, you know, in those early days of uh, of a very severe sort of health crisis, and then the the challenge of moving everybody to working from home, the challenge we had of of dealing with assets and all those things. When everybody is busy and focused and and uh, and having to work together as a team, really having to come together as a team, it's actually a fantastic opportunity for me to see a team in action, to be integrated into that team in action. So in some ways, you know, it's a it's a fantastic transition <laughs> from that perspective. But to your question on the challenges, look, the key is staff well-being, of course. We moved to 500 offices from our normal nine global offices as everybody is suddenly working from home. Um, you've got the practical challenges of that that we've all dealt with, I'm sure, of, of technology and everything else, which all went actually remarkably smoothly. And then you have the just the sort of psychological, personal challenges that that everybody has and everybody has their own context but dealing with suddenly uh, spending 24 hours at your workplace I think I did hear someone it's not working from home it's it's living at work Um, it's really important that we try and protect our staff from feeling like that and we need to give them the guidance and the coaching and the tools to to be able to deal with that because none of us have been through that process day after day after day of being 
where your where your work is all of the time is um is not something that we're trained to deal with most of us anyway the key challenge has been helping our staff through that helping them understand how to cope with that what are the what are the tools what are the challenges what are the strategies that they that they should deploy how do you create the boundary between uh, home and, and work which is normally defined by a commute and when that isn't there how do you create that boundary and if you if you don't people just get exhausted um, and they get stressed by everything else that's going on around them so you know we've had a lot of done a lot there I think to help but that's been the, the key the key challenge uh, but of course we run um, uh, large portfolios of assets all around the world and those assets some of them have been clearly massively impacted by the COVID environment. So that you know, watching the team that I um, have come to join, watching them set about their work of firstly making sure that the staff in those assets were looked after and then thinking about how to make the asset as resilient as possible, how to keep the essential services that they offer running. Clearly that's critical. You know, the, them going about that work in an incredibly professional and diligent way. I was uh, I was very impressed with that. But but clearly, an immense challenge. You, you you don't typically build a team to deal with every single one of your assets having a major issue at the same time, all at the same time. You know, I know the whole world was dealing with similar issues, but um, you know, you can imagine the the stretch and the strain that that puts on a team when you're having to cope with that so um you know that that uh, that's clearly been interesting as we've navigated navigated through that sort of environment and then the other challenge has been thinking about the external uh environment so the economy that we're a part of and thinking about so what can we do to be a part of the recovery from that um and so you know there's clearly a major challenge that our economy is dealing with and, and what can we do to be a part of the solution. So it's been interesting. Those are some wonderful reflections and terrific to see you talking about people first because I think it really is a people challenge. But obviously your investments and the future economy are also quite significant. Perhaps if we could um, turn to your investments. I mean, I, as you said, IFM has a very significant asset portfolio and I know you have a number of airport assets uh, which, as we all know, has been hugely impacted by the health crisis, but also the government's various responses to that crisis. Do you think, as a result of COVID, that ISM investors will change your approach to investment in projects going forward and the types of assets that you will invest in? At a high level, no, I don't, Nikki. I don't think we will, because if you think about what we're doing, we're we're aiming to construct diversified portfolios. Uh, well, we're aiming to understand long-term cash flows that we can put a value on, long-term dependable cash flows. Those cash flows are dependable, typically in our space, in infrastructure space, because of the the sort of essential service um, monopolistic or close to monopolistic characteristic that they have those things don't change now clearly there are probably going to be some disruption to that for some time it's going to take a while for people to be 
to be traveling again um, in the way that they were before. You know, it's very uncertain what the propensity to travel will look like. How quickly will that, that recover? That will depend, obviously, on how the health crisis unfolds, how we find vaccines. Might depend a lot on government policy, things like testing regimes at airports. Um, you know, there's much that we can do and that I'm confident that we that the world will do to to either solve or or help manage this crisis and that's just sort of the way things you, you buy assets um and and some of them are impacted by something that you didn't foresee or couldn't foresee and you manage your way out of that the best way possible but they are that's why we construct diverse portfolios you know what what will be the next major crisis to hit maybe that's something that uh, will impact other sorts of investments you know the at a high level, the way to think about our portfolio, I think through this crisis has been that if you're moving, if you're moving people around, you've had a problem. If you're moving goods around, you've had less of a problem. You know, so yes, the economy has been impacted, but clearly there's still a lot of trade. Certainly, uh, my family seems to be keeping the postal delivery service pretty busy. I, I get, we're getting parcels delivered every other day. So clearly there's goods still moving around. And, and so if you, you know, the port has been a lot less impacted than the airport. Um, and if you're only utility, then, then largely gone, uh, gone unscathed. So, you know, at a high level, you've just got to keep trying to anticipate the risks that might be set particular assets and you've got to build diverse portfolios. And so no, I don't, I don't really see that changing. So you mentioned both um, your portfolio and then you'd also mentioned the economy. I know there's a lot of discussion about, you know, infrastructure investment and procurement being our silver bullet on the road to economic recovery. It would be great to hear your thoughts on what you think our governments at various levels should be doing to help facilitate that. And perhaps if we could break it down into sort of two sub-questions. One is the types of projects that you think could help get the economy ticking along? And secondly, are there any other regulatory or policy reforms that governments could look to to really improve investment and certainty in that pipeline and, and the benefits of investment for investors such as yourself? Yeah. I mean, so clearly, clearly there is a great opportunity, um, as, you, as you've mentioned, for infrastructure to play a role in the recovery. I mean, it seems sort of seems self-evident that if we can move quickly to build assets which improve the productivity of the economy but at the same time obviously create lots of jobs to build them in the first place that's something we should be really working hard at and it's and it's obviously something that governments around the world have, have been talking about so i think that's that is that is clear and it's why we are so engaged on this question i think that we, we feel like we have a responsibility here to be a part of the conversation, to be a part of the solution. In terms of the types of projects, the sorts of projects that you can move the fastest are those in the existing assets and where ourselves and, and, um, and industry super funds and, and other long-term investors more generally you know, have been deploying substantial capital already you know, over the years, continuing to reinvest. And, and there are many reinvestment, uh, further investment opportunities at the assets that we own. So there's opportunities for 
new terminals and new runways and things like that, which will be required for our growing population. The key around a lot of those, I mean, you know, a lot of the capex has been deferred as cash flows are sort of dried up and focus is elsewhere. But if we can get people moving around through airports again and, and we can get the cash flow moving, then that sort of investment can move very quickly. What can government do to help there? Well, approvals could be fast tracked. You know, so often these things take many years to get from uh, the start to actually uh, commencing, you know, putting the, the, the mythical shovel in the ground. So fast tracking those sorts of approvals would be kind of helpful. But there's, there's plenty that we're doing there. But one of the really interesting broader themes here that I know has been talked about a fair bit is the idea of the building back better, the, the well, can we can we build back in a, a more environmentally responsible way, lower emissions, all that sort of stuff. And, and so lots of our investments that we've been doing have been in things like solar farms behind the meter on our airports. Airports have the characteristic of usually having lots of land, so plenty of places to put solar panels. And that's an extremely reliable and value-adding, but also obviously environmentally advantageous set of investments to do and I imagine that we'll continue to do those sorts of those sorts of things. How can government help? You know what we don't do really is sit and analyze the the national economy and figure out where the infrastructure needs the, the biggest infrastructure needs are. There are all sorts of bodies already established for government mm-hmm. um, state and federal level advising government on all of that what we really need is for government to just make the decisions about, well, what is that pipeline? So one of the critically important things that the government can do is to make the decisions about what are the critical pieces of infrastructure that they believe are required, what are they going to prioritise, and therefore what's the pipeline of projects that we're going to see. And then we can start doing our work on uh, what is of interest to us and how we might want to be a part of, 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 of those projects and those solutions. So I think that clarity and that leadership from government, state and federal, is, uh, would be a hugely valuable thing that they could do. Uh, and then we've been talking about uh, how you then get from that pipeline of projects to uh, an actual project that's that's often running capital supported and planned and we've been observing that for many of these sort of greenfield projects long-term equity capital tends not to be a part of the solution so this is probably an opportune time to talk about the model that ifm investors has proposed to solve that issue yes so the lack of long-term equity capital, when you think about it, is a bit of a puzzle in terms of supporting new greenfield projects. You know, why is that not the case? We've got this substantial pool of superannuation savings in the country that is very keen to find appropriately returning investments in this country. You know, the the multiple wins that come with projects that create returns as well as jobs as well as a more productive future economy particularly at this moment in time this is uh, this is something that that ought to be the perfect place for long-term equity capital to play a role 
and yet it's not in greenfield typically uh, it buys up the existing assets it buys up the brownfield but it's not been involved and and the reason for that we think is the way that they're procured so the constructor led bid into a ppp kind of project or something similar is incentivizing highly levered structures where there is very little equity uh, it incentivizes the constructor to make a construction margin because that's what they do over a three to four year period it is uh, less about what's the 40 year cash flow stream look like and how well is that asset going to perform over that 40 year period uh, it's less about how is that asset going to meet the needs of the community around it over a long period of time? Um, you know, so we kind of think, well, what, why, how can we get superannuation capital involved? And, and our, our suggestion is that it needs to be on a much more partnership base with government, that the government brings in an equity partner, that they together... Uh, work through how best to allocate the various risks in a project across different parties. Risk sharing has been is a key downfall of the current model. The government thinks it's offloaded risk to someone and that they are unable to bear it. And of course, then the risk comes straight back to government um, because there's nowhere else for it to go. Whereas if you share risk with a long-term equity partner that can offset risk over that 40 year cash flow period, they've got a much bigger ability to absorb and the taxpayer, I think, gets a much better outcome as a result. So we think the working with an equity partner to, to design up these projects and how they are managed and governed is, is, uh, has that, that advantage. The other advantage it has is that it means you're not reliant on one large constructor. You can break the project up into small pieces. Um, you don't have to have the entire project planned out and scoped and costed before you start. You can actually get moving on it. You can also parcel it out to smaller constructors. Uh, we can have more mid-sized, small and mid-sized Australian domestic firms uh, involved in the process than, than we perhaps currently do, which we think is also good, obviously, for strengthening and deepening the Australian economy. So we think there's lots of advantages to this uh, approach, but it requires a different mindset from government. It requires them to be confident enough um, and comfortable working as a as a partner with equity capital, such as a superannuation fund, but not necessarily a superannuation fund. Any long term investor with the appropriate skills, obviously, could could play this role. And you know, IFM certainly would like to play a part in in that. So you raise an interesting topic there, which is the risk sharing. We've obviously seen projects where government have thought that those risks have been passed on to the private sector only for them to come back because you can never really contract out the government ultimate risk and the yeah. fact that they will be the ultimate concessionaire, etc. In your model, would you be re-looking at the way that risk has been shared between government and the private sector to try and revisit that sharing and for some of those risks that have traditionally been passed on to be considered in a different way? Yes, I think that's by its nature, that's how this, this would work. The, the key is 
you get a much more gauged collaborative conversation for each risk who is best to bear it. And that's a, a sort of a, not just a level of risk, but a value, a value equation for the taxpayer in going through that conversation. So um, how much does it cost to lay off this risk to the private sector? Are we prepared to bear that risk? Are we the best people to bear that risk? Now, the government is in a much better position to bear regulatory risk than the private sector. You know, they're, they're in control of, of whether that's going to change. Um, there are obvious conversations that can be had which would lead to a much more optimal allocation of the risks. That's really all it is. So there's no single answer here. There's no, this is the way you do it. Every project is, every project has its own context and is complex in its own many ways. So that's why the idea of, a, of, of having a collaborative partnership enables you to flex around that context and get to a more optimal solution. That's our view anyway. But it's, uh, it requires a different mindset and it requires probably different skills um, within government and, and arguably within the private sector as well. But we think those, those skills exist and, and, uh, and that shouldn't stop us moving forward with this sort of model. And there are others around the world who have used a model like this, apparently with, with great success. Yeah, the model would certainly have a lot of merit in terms of, you know, opening up your contractor options and remanaging risk. And I think any project that you guys invest in is going to be significant. And looking at each project on its own merits and where the risks for each project allocated is, is absolutely the way forward. Interested also to understand on that basis where you would have multiple contractors and whether you have thought through this as yet or whether it would be managed on a project-by-project project basis. But that gives rise to a, a number of interfaces and potential interface risk. How would that be managed with the multiple contractor situation? Well, I think you need an appropriate delivery partner that is, is skilled in, in that space. You know, these are, those interfaces exist anyway in any major project. They, they, already, they already exist, really. I think the key difference is the amount of involvement that equity capital has in the management of those interfaces. And the point about bringing the equity capital into the management of those interfaces is that you are bringing in uh, the entity that is most aligned for the long term. So that that management is, is occurring with the lens of what's the best long term outcome here rather than what's the how do I maximize my three year margin? For building this thing, I don't think that the the interface is particularly of that much more complex than they would be. It's, it's not the what really; it's the how is this being done with what alignment, with what mindset is this being done? It's interesting because the whole model goes to fostering investment, and we spoke about pipeline. And if we could get certainty of pipeline, that would help. Are there any other things that Australia can do to really help create Australia being a destination for what are massive capital flows all around the world. Yeah, look, I think the whenever you speak to any long-term investor, they will say, well, you'd need policy and regulatory certainty wherever you go in the world. If you're making a long-term investment, that's that's what you're looking for. And and the less of that there is, then the more expensive that project 
is to uh, is to get off the ground or the higher the return that the investor requires given the risk you know and australia has historically been very strong on this it is a very attractive destination particularly on the infrastructure side but i think as a country generally um we've generally been pretty good with a a dependable regulatory environment and policy settings stable rule of law stable government that sort of stuff it's important that we hold on to that you know, i think there's there's there are some risks that we begin to lose that and and it, as you've alluded to in your question it's a highly competitive environment now the the governments all around the world are competing for the investor dollar and needing to be as attractive as they can possibly be to uh, to bring the, that capital in you know, dollars are instantly globally mobile these days that it's it's important that the government has that has that in mind and resists the temptation to tweak and tinker with settings that are important to long-term investors do you have any views as to whether some of the recent legislative changes will benefit local superannuation funds and investors because the internationals will be more skeptical about their opportunity to invest i think whenever there's a there's a change made which creates uncertainty for the foreign investor more uncertainty then clearly that's going to create an advantage for the domestic investor and and so so yes i'm i'm sure sure that is the case you know interestingly we face a similar concern as australian investors when we go offshore because uh most countries now are looking at tightening their foreign investor rules worried about national security type risks in particular the the whole sort of context of that change risks the a less efficient movement of capital around the world and that's that's obviously not good for any of us so you know, i think it's important that we don't uh, that the the governments find a way to balance these sorts of considerations as 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 effectively as they can one of the things that we would like to see is uh is obviously a sort of pre-clearance or at least understanding you know, what what are the criteria you're going to use in making your decision and how consistent have you been in applying those criteria how consistent um and transparent have those decisions been that's what we're thinking about when we're investing in other countries and i'm pretty sure that's what the foreign investors will be looking for uh in an australian context and the less consistency they see the less clarity over the criteria the harder it will be for them to commit to these sorts of um investments yeah i think you're 100% right particularly when one considers the big costs involved in a number of these projects getting most of the way through a bit and not knowing whether you're going to get knocked out unrelated to price or how beautiful your assets going to look is pretty important picking up from the critical assets and investment into australia one of the interesting things through covid is our ability as an australian nation to be self sufficient particularly when it comes to critical assets of which you invest in such as our electricity assets or our telco assets do you think investors will start looking at supply chain 
as a key risk now? And what do you think would be the appetite for re-establishing certain manufacturing plants in Australia for those key components that mean we keep our critical assets functioning? Um, your first part of the question, will, will investors uh, look at the, the essentially the resilience of the supply chain? I mean, of course, absolutely. I think that we've certainly, we've learned very clear lessons um, about the importance not to concentrate too much on uh, any one source of, of goods. Does it make sense and will we bring everything onshore? That feels like that's probably going too far. But there's clearly a um, when you bring a new a new risk factor in to the decision and give it a higher weight than it had before, then um, we're going to get different answers. And, I, and so, yeah, I think there's there will be there there's very likely to be a pretty substantial amount of sort of reonshoring, if you like, of all sorts of things, you know, including uh, including in the manufacturing space, but. Exactly how much that is, I think, again, depends on how we progress with the health crisis, managing the health crisis as much as anything else. Now, there's a difference between you can diversify a supply chain uh, by saying, well, we'll move. We, 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 we don't want to be so reliant on country X. Um, we're now going to make sure that our supply chain comes from um, X, Y and Z. Well, what you can't diversify is your border. So if you're, if the risk is I might not be able to bring something in across the border, then you have no choice. You have to onshore. If, you, if you're concerned about concentration risk, then you can diversify. The actors in the economy will be making decisions about which one of those it is that we're particularly worried about. I would like to think that uh, we can overcome the border issue, that we're not going to see our border shut too often and that really this is actually more about diversification and so you know maybe a lot of this supply chain resilience will come from just moving our supply suppliers to other jurisdictions it's an interesting concept around the border i would have also thought that as technology improves we could become again a nation that takes a greater interest in manufacturing i think the whole discussion around technology, digitisation and decarbonisation is, is a really current one and an absolutely critical one. I note that ISM investors cut carbon emissions in 2019 from a range of your investments by more than 8%. Can you talk to us about the focus on decarbonisation? I note I was listening to a conference recently where it was stated it's not really a choice anymore. It's just part of what we have to do, both in the procurement, but also the operation of infrastructure assets. It absolutely is. We've moved, um, by we, I, I really mean the industry, but, but IFM is, is aiming to, to be a leader in this. We're moving so quickly from the way investments were thought about was uh, where the ESG was thought about was a kind of risk-based approach where you would bring ESG risk, climate risk into the valuation of the asset where either, you know, when you were thinking about buying it, you would look at, well, how, how at risk are these cash flows 
from um, environmental impact, whether that's uh, you know a carbon price coming on and getting larger, or whether that's uh, physical risk. But you would you you do a risk based assessment. Are that is that asset going to get stranded? You'd put a value on it, and if you could buy it for less than that, then then it was a good investment. Um, but you were bringing the climate risk in. We've moved. We're moving so rapidly past that now to the much more sophisticated approach, which is, well, actually our responsibility is to transition this asset. So what we're now doing is we're having to project a plan. Um, We're having to project uh, the transition plan for uh, how the emissions in the asset will fall over time and obviously different investors can set whatever target that is they're looking for. You know, we will be aiming for Paris Agreement consistency. So we've got to work through the complexity of what that means. What does it mean to be consistent with the Paris Agreement for the way that this toll road needs to change through time? What does it mean for this pipeline? What does it mean for this airport in this context? You're projecting the business forward over decades uh, and you've got to do that in the context of not really knowing what the technology will be. Of co- well, not of course, not knowing what the technology will be to help you with this in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. But that's the job that we're doing now. That's the job that we have to do. And I think all responsible investors have to do is it's not just about putting a value on a series of cash flows today. It's about designing and executing a transition plan over the next decades. So a lot of work to do in retrofitting existing assets. And I think historically in the built environment, we've always thought about what's the assets impact on the environment and a lot of our planning systems think about that. I think though we're now at a point where we have to think about, in addition to that, what is the environment's impact on the asset rather than the asset's impact on the environment? And how do we build assets that are resilient for the future. Do you think there's an opportunity in the procurement of infrastructure as well, not just the retrofit, to start building into the scopes of work that have to be delivered? That resilience? Yes, uh, yes, of course. Um, it would be nonsensical really for us to be building new investments that we didn't believe were resilient to climate change that would make no sense so if that's what you mean by that question um absolutely i I think that's absolutely critical the word resilience and infrastructure is also used in another way which is looking at how you can repurpose assets do you think we need to be building assets with always multi-purpose optionality or is that just going to blow our costs in a way that you know, not really feasible. So let me give you an example. Um, Talking to a couple of engineers the other day, they were saying, you know, they're building car parks, but they've been asked in the design of the car park to have the car park built in a way where at some future point it can be converted into apartments. Now that has all sorts of really crazy engineering challenges because car parks have certain slopes to deal with all of that. So then how do you do that? You know, even seeing through COVID the way we've repurposed various assets around the country to become temporary hospitals or things like that. Is that something we should be thinking about or is it just in the too hard basket and you deal with it as and when it arises? 
where you can and where that makes sense, absolutely you should. I don't think that we should lose sight, though, of the immense uncertainty uh, that climate forecasting has and climate projecting has. And so dealing, you know, as investors, long-term investing is tricky at the best of times. You know, understanding uh, what future cash flows will be and therefore what value you should put on them is hard anyway. You know, forecasting the future is not the easiest thing in the world. To overlay on top of that, forecasting the exact way that climate change will play out in a particular country or in a particular region and what that means for the future asset needs is really hard. And so whilst what you say has lots of attraction and where you can do it at an acceptable cost would make lots of sense. But um, I think it would be, it is important not to overpay for that. You know, I think that uh, we can't really be that sure as to what the future looks like. And you, you don't want to commit too much today's valuable capital to something that you're not sure about. There's plenty to spend our capital on that can be helping us become more climate resilient without, in some ways, that feels like you're almost speculating. I do remember on the board of one of the airports, we did have a think about exactly that point you talked about. Could we could we build this car park in a certain way that we could reuse it in the future? And it does dramatically increase the cost of building that car park. And you're probably better off using that extra capital in an, another way. Well, while I've got the crystal ball out and have asking <laughs> you to foretell the future, be really interested on your thoughts on what Australia's economy in the next three to five years may, may or might look like. <laughs> when you've got such massive forces pushing against each other, this huge force of the health crisis and the climate and the economic crisis that it is spawning, pushing against this huge stimulus response that we've got, quite unusual. Uh, stimulus response that we're getting, and this is a local and global comment, it's very hard to know how the balance of those two incredibly strong forces will play out. It's, it's, it's just really difficult to know. It's easy to paint the story that we'll have a sort of depressionary, deflationary sort of environment. You can also say, well, we're going to drive out of this so hard, given this strong stimulus, that we're going to have, before we know it, an inflationary problem. You can actually paint both of those stories. And so I think trying to predict too much is, is, is hard. You know, for our, for our part, we, we tend to think that it's going to be probably three years or so before the economy is back to 2019 kind of levels. Uh, one of the things that we worry about, um, we don't really have the answers to, but we worry about from the shape of the economy perspective is that we're entrenching the inequities even more. You know, the so-called, this is a so-called kind of pink recession. And as we've been doing, talking about helping the recovery through construction. You know, so women and and, um, and also a lot of lower skilled people, they're, they're generally the ones that have that have suffered through this hospitality industry and so on. You know, creating a bunch of construction jobs will help the economy in aggregate, but it does 
probably deepen some of the inequities. So that's a that's a feature of the shape of the economy going forward that I think we need to think pretty hard about how we how we address. We've been uh, stepping up our work to understand what uh, some of the sort of procurement practices for services and things like that in our assets are that so that we can see whether there's things that we can do to help on that side. But, you know, that's something that I kind of worry a bit about. David, thank you so much for joining us today. We have covered a very vast array of topics, all infrastructure related, and we're most grateful for your thoughts and insights. And certainly looking forward to seeing what we do do in the next year, three years and five years and seeing how Australia goes from strength to strength, including our various entities like IFM Investors. So thank you. Uh, look, thanks very much, Nikki. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. That was David Neal in conversation with Minza Ellison's Nicole Green. For more information about these issues and more, visit MinzaEllison.com forward slash podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And you can rate, comment and listen to our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.